0: Lord, thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your generosity, Um, even when I don't sense it, feel it, or care to take notice of it. Yet it's prevalent, it's there, it's pressing, and we welcome it. And so may we be overwhelmed by your goodness this morning, by your kindness, by your loving demeanor, by your welcoming arms no matter what we've walked in here with. And may we respond to you in a way that acknowledges you as King, as Lord, as Savior. And may you be the delight of our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, We've been working our way through Richard Foster's celebration of discipline. And we've got a little nifty chart that's going to get thrown up here in just a second, talking about the different spiritual disciplines. And we've already dealt with the four inward disciplines. And you can see those as Prayer, fasting, study, and meditation. Then we worked on over the last four weeks those more outward disciplines, things that we do one to another, like submission or service, or maybe something that we physically remove ourselves and spend time in a solitude or take on simplicity. And now we move to, towards these outward, or excuse me, these corporate disciplines. And the first one that we are going to tackle is going to be the discipline of confession. Now, by definition, corporate disciplines are things that we do one with another. And with really this privatization of faith that we've sort of developed in Western culture, these are going to be a bit tough for Western thinkers. I'm just going to say that this morning. The next four disciplines that we're going to talk about uh, can be a bit of a challenge, even when we get downright to celebration, and it shouldn't be, but it can be because of how much we want to privatize our life and our faith. And this morning, well, it's really no different as we talk about confession. Now, when I say confession, I'm just sort of curious what maybe comes to your mind. This was the first thing that came to my mind. I got a little video for you guys here this morning. everything. Poor poor Chunk. (laughs) Gosh, I love that. Uh, When I think of confession, I... Pretty much that's the image that comes in my mind, that, hey, it's it's time to talk. And whether um, I relate with Chunk, uh, I spent some in-school detention for cheating in computer class, lied to the assistant principal. It was a whole ordeal. Uh, I can really relate to his testimony there. Maybe in church, if you think of confession, uh, years ago, we actually used to meet on, I think it was, 10th Street, uh, that little Catholic church there, and they had legit confessionals in the back, you know, and so you'd have this room you'd go in, and then another room the priest would sit in, and you've got this wood divider, and you could go in there and just sort of bare your soul to them, and part of us might be like, that's not such a bad idea at times, because we just need space to talk, I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about confession, but I hope to dispel some myths around it. Hope to encourage us what it looks like both personally and privately to engage in it, but maybe what it could look like in your life uh, somewhat corporately. And by corporately, I do not mean coming up here and burying your soul like chunk, right? I know that's what we think when I say things like that. But inviting others into your life that you can be honest with now. To just initiate this conversation on confession, I want you to think about a scenario. Um, There was a man who had it all. Uh, He truly was living his best life at that moment. Things were so good. He was conquering lands. He was incredibly wealthy. He was building his own house. He was preparing to build what would be the temple, the house of the Lord. His kingdom was advancing. He was respected. People wrote songs about him. He was a hero in which even in his own day, they're telling stories about the things that he had accomplished. But all of that was not enough for this man. His name is King David. Ah, That's good. King David. And during the season, as the scriptures say, that the men would go out to war, David at this point decided to hang back. And as he hung back, he noticed that there was a little lady hanging out on her rooftop bathing, and for uh, maybe days, weeks, or just this one time, he decided to take a little peek over one rooftop to another. Then he summons this woman to come to his house, and he engages in relationship with her, sends her home, finds out she's pregnant. This is not a good look for a king. This is not a good look for a king who's staying at home when he should probably be out to war with his men. So what does he do? Rather than come clean with it, he decides to devise a plan. He's going to bring Uriah home. And he brings Uriah home and he invites him into his house and he gets Uriah pretty drunk and tells him, go home and lie with your wife. Go sleep with her. Why? This would be a great cover-up for David. But Uriah, being a man of integrity, he did not feel it was right for him to do that while the other men were at war. So he sleeps outside, and David takes notes. So David brings him back in the house, and they party it up once again, and David suggests for Uriah to go home and be with his wife. And he refuses. So what does David do? He packs Uriah up with his own death note. He writes to the commanding general that you are to make advances towards the wall where they know the archers are going to be able to shoot down anybody that's approaching and to put Uriah on the front lines because he has to put this problem of his to death. And he does just that. And Uriah goes to war. And Uriah is hit. And Uriah is struck. Uriah is killed. And David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. It's a gnarly, nasty situation. The desire to hide, to minimize, to justify his wrongdoing, to then cover up. And we have to wonder, how's it going for David at this point? If you have your Bibles open, Psalm 32 allows for us to peer into his life. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32, one through two, verse three now. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of of summer. This is the position that David finds himself in. In trying to hide, and trying to cover, he feels what I would say is the heavy hand of the Lord resting upon him. He kept silent, and his insides, his bones are wasting away. He has no strength. I would relate this to the anxiety, stress, sleeplessness, depression that has come upon him. Maybe you've experienced this when you've done some kind of wrong and you've done everything you can to recover your tracks. And at night you lay awake and you're thinking, did I slip up? Are they going to find out? Are they going to finally know that I was the cause of this pain and suffering in somebody's life? Rather than simply embracing the wrongdoing, confessing it, there's a motive in our hearts to cover ourselves and to hide. Yet what it does to us, inwardly, our gut churns, and there's fear of being found out, and there's anguish, and there's pain. So what happens in David's story? God is faithful, He brings a prophet named Nathan who tells this intriguing story of somebody who takes a very poor man's sheep when he has many. And he takes that sheep and he butchers it for his guest. And Nathan says, David, what should we do? He says, kill him, right? Put him to death. And Nathan goes, David, you're that man. You're that man. And on your own time, because we're not going to be able to get into it this morning, it comes into play towards the end of this teaching. But in Psalm 51, David pens this confession, and David begins to express everything that's been going on in his life. Now, I think, I think many of us can feel like David. Maybe you sit in here, and you're a person who is, what well, we'd say, transferred from a life of darkness and death into a life of life, and a life of life and living and light and giving that God has done in you. And even so, there are still these moments that we find ourselves engaged in activity that is destructive, that causes injustice to our neighbors, to our friends, to maybe even people we love or outrightly to people we do not love and we hurt and we harm them and it doesn't sit right in our souls. And the question is, what in the world are we to do with this, with this internal just whirlwind of feelings and angst and anxiety? And how are we to approach God? And the scriptures teach there is something that we get to participate in both privately and corporately to be free. And it's this thing called confession. If we continue to look at Psalm 32, in verse five, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David realizes this and begins to understand it. And then he says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. For you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with a shout of deliverance. There's an invitation that David is extending to everyone. Just as he experienced this pain from having to deal with his lie and his deception, murdering Uriah, committing adultery, he then invites us into the same kind of confession in which we experience freedom. What is confession here this morning? Richard Foster says, Confession is the spiritual discipline that allows us to enter into the grace and mercy of God In such a way that we experience forgiveness and healing for the sins and sorrows of the past. Confession is first a grace that God has given us. He gives us a grace. Without it, no genuine confession can be made. Confession is a grace, but confession is also a discipline. It is something that we consciously choose. It's a course of action that brings us under the shadow of the Almighty. So when I say confession, how do you guys feel this morning? Can you just get like a little tensed up, like, "Oh my goodness, we've been told to practice these things? Is he going to make me turn to my neighbor today?" I'm still an American, too. I've got my boundaries, all right? <laughs> I'm not going to do that to you this morning. Or maybe your first objection is, why should I have to confess? Everything's already been covered by God. I know that he loves and he accepts me. I'm righteous in him. Why do I need to participate in that? Or or maybe I can get on board with this idea of I should confess my faults, my sins to God, but not to anybody else. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, as we sit down with a teaching on confession... It's hard enough to come clean with ourselves, that we have to think too highly, that we minimize, that we justify, or dismiss things, let alone come to conclusions in which we might actually, might actually need to go to somebody and share with them what's in our lives. Is there any precedence for this in the scriptures? Well, in 1 Timothy 2:5, Uh, A lot of this teaching came out of the Reformation because the Catholic Church kind of had the market cornered on confession. You'd go to your confession and you'd pay some sort of indulgence and the priest would um, there say, your sins are forgiven, they're gone, they've been done away with. And this didn't sit well with Martin Luther as part of his 95 thesis that he nailed there to the door. And one of the scriptures he used was 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And what this is explaining is, look, you don't need an intermediate to go to in order to have your sins forgiven. That happens alone because of what Jesus Christ has done. And you have this access to him. As we're told, this veil that once separated us between us and God there in the temple, that was torn, that was rent at the death of Jesus. He is resurrected. And now we boldly enter into his throne room of grace. Right? That's wonderful. That's wonderful. But in James 5.16, it says, confess your sins one to another, and then it says to pray for one another. And so when we talk about confession this morning, it's not an either or, but a both and. Now, I already know we're gonna have issues with this. We struggle with the idea of letting people into our lives in that way. Why is that? And that's where I kind of wanna focus the the rest of our time here this morning. We struggle with corporate confession, typically because they fall really under these two categories. One big heady, we have fears. What kind of fears? Fear of feeling like, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And then the next thing we worry about is, if you actually know me, I fear being found out. I do. Then will I be accepted? If you truly know me, will you welcome me? Will you love me? Will you embrace me with all my faults, with all my failures, with all my shortcomings? Can you even love me? I understand you can love the version that I put off of myself, the billboard that I want you all to see. And maybe I'm a smiley, nice guy. But if you truly knew me, would you love me? And so, what we have in our culture is this deep fear of being found out. Because, really, in this day and age, there's nothing worse than being found out. There's nothing worse than having your past being dug into and people going, Oh, you were not a good person. <laughs> I saw that tweet from five years ago. That's going to be pretty damning on your reputation. This is not going to go well for you. I see that you've lived lifestyles that cause pain and suffering. I don't want to get near you. And we have this fear of being found out. And to first kind of put that to rest, Foster suggests something in his book. And I have to preface this. I like and don't like what he's about to say. And if you're reading the book, that's why I've got to talk about this here this morning. This is what he says. Confession is hard because we primarily see ourselves as a community of saints, over a community of sinners? Hmm. Well, yes and no. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus, your identity is saint. It's who you are. You're loved, accepted, welcomed by God. There's nothing you can do to undo that truth and that reality. That's our identity, but let's be honest. There's a lot of sinful activity amongst us, (laughs) right? Who's been offended by a Christian before? Oh, come on, yeah. I've been offended by Christians. I've been offended by Christians that didn't even know that they offended me. We've all been offended, are hurt, are wronged by Christians. You see, we have this struggle because we understand our identity. You can read the New Testament and over and over again, you are a saint, you are loved, you are accepted, you are the beloved. And we can go on and on. You are righteous, you are sanctified, you are justified about who we are in Christ. But then we also understand that. There's some activity that we participate in that is not helpful, that is harmful, that causes injustice. And what the heck are we going to do with that? Because we all struggle. And so when we walk into the church, maybe you're new here, you might not be a Christian, or you walk into this place and, and like, you looked at your kids. They probably, you know, came in and maybe there was some stained clothes or hair not combed. You look at yourself. I don't know if I fit here. Look at what you drove in compared to everybody else. Or you think about your own week that you've had. I'm way worse than everybody here. Do I belong? And this is what Foster's hitting at, is a lot of people, because the way the church has, well, to some degree, been pretty judgmental, you walk in and, and you think, I'm the only one. This is not a community of sinners. Well, no, it's a community of saints who do participate in sinful activity. Like we do. And I wanted to dispel this idea that we're perfect here or we're polished here or we have it together here or that we have to be dressed up and look a certain way. Nine out of 10 Sundays, I have coffee stains all over my shirt when I walk in. Uh, man, I remember when I was teaching once at uh, the church I was at before, at fab I had an infant. It was Ava, and I was holding her, and she just spit up like all over me right before I go on stage. So I smell like kid puke, and I've got kid puke all over me. It's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's normal. Okay? You're not the only one. I think we can grasp that. I think that that can kind of sink in and we can be okay with that and we have to maybe push out some of our own feelings on that. But the deeper question that we have is, that's fine, but will you love, will you accept me? If you know me, will you like me? Has anybody ever else wondered that? Let me put it in these, this scenario. If you've ever been invited out to lunch or coffee or to somebody's home for dinner and you have this conversation and immediately afterwards, you're thinking either to yourself in your own head Or you turn to, if you went with a friend or with a spouse, and you say something like, did I say something wrong that night? Do you think they'll call us back? Do you think they liked me? This is something that humans deal with on a regular. Are they going to accept me, or did I already blow this? And that's a deep question that we have. If you know me, will you love and accept me? A great example of this is marriage. Why? Why? Because when you're dating, your best foot is put forward. You are, man, a knight in shining armor, showing up to help whenever it's needed, answering phone calls, saying the right things. Girls, you smell great, you look great, and then you get married. Maybe. And my wife found out quickly, it was my roommates that cleaned, it was not me. that I truly only knew how to make one thing, and we ate it together once a month when I cooked. And it was bad news. And the guy that used to drop anything at any moment to go and help, well, I'm kind of busy now, and I can't just do that anymore because I've won you over. And I found out that, no, you do not like football or hanging out watching me play video games in my 20s. (laughs) In my 30s right? And are we going to commit to each other still with all of our good, with all of our bad? And we can joke about that. But on a deeper level, there is a hinge of, if you truly know me, will you love me? And it holds us back from being honest before God and with one another. There's an idea that if you know me, it's going to repel you, But in all reality, when we begin to open up our lives one with another, we begin to see this ministry that God has given, and we'll look at a scripture in a little bit, of actually being then more loved, more accepted, not just because you're sharing some tragedy that then you're both invited into and walking through, but when you know that it's not just a joint tragedy that you get to invite someone in on, but this is me with all my faults and failures and past, my anger, My bitterness. This is the things that are going on inside of me. And somebody says, I still love and accept you. It's a radical display of the work of Jesus in one another's lives that makes the church such a beautiful, wonderful place to be a part of when it's done right. But tragically, we've tried to portray this church as this moral high ground, this footing that we have above the world, and it's not going well. It's not going well whether you're watching the Hillsong documentary on the Discovery Network or listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill through podcasts and Christianity Today, we realize that the church has tried to put off a persona that we've got it down, when in all reality, we are incredibly broken. And maybe we should, maybe we should reflect that a little bit more. Maybe that'd be a little more enticing to say, you know what, it's okay to not be okay. as Chandler says, let's not stay there. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Now let's help. Let's help one another and what that looks like. And so if we were going to look at some kind of biblical framework of what it looks like, this idea of repentance, we can't read the whole story, but the story of the prodigal son is an incredible picture of how this is put out for us. This son goes to his father and does one of the most repulsive actions that he could have done in that day. He's going to heap shame upon his father. He says, Dad, you're not dead yet. I wish you were. I wish you were as good as dead, but since you're not, I'm going to take my portion of the inheritance. And as Jesus tells this story, the son takes that inheritance and he squanders it. He shames his family. He knows that he's caused injustices. He knows that there is sin that's been involved. He knows not only that, but there is this admission of guilt when he finally comes to his senses and he says, I have sinned not only against my family, but I have sinned against God in heaven. I have sinned against the heavens. I'm not worthy to be your son. There's this grievous weight to the things that he has done. And so he devises a plan of, let me just come back to the house and be a servant. And the story takes a shocking twist. Because on human terms, We'd be like, yeah, maybe he can come back into dad's house and just kind of serve and work off his debt. That's how things work in our culture and society. But the father, who's a representation of the father, does something very different. He sees the son coming. And the son begins to express his guilt, his shame, his pain. And he's getting ready to just ask, can I just be a servant? And the father says, kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a party. My son has returned. And he robes him. They're in the family robe. Beautiful picture of how this works. We've done wrong. We've caused harm. We're far from God. We come to our senses. We confess. And God's not there like this. You know, I've shared this before. If you were to close your eyes and picture God, how do you picture him looking at you? With my four children, this is how I kind of picture God looking at at me at times. Um, Toothpaste is a disaster in our house. Anybody else? It's messy. It's all over the sink. And I'm always just like, so mad. And sometimes that's how I feel God would look down on me. Brett, again, can't you get it right? But this story is so inverted because he's not a father doing this. He's a father doing this. But the problem is, in our minds, he's a father doing this. And this, this look is one in which kids do not run to. Try it. Try it today. There's going to be hundreds of kids running around up here in a little bit. All right? So there just are. And if you do this and look at them, you're like a brick wall. They're just gone. But if you're like this, what do they do? They run to you. That's the father in the prodigal. That's the father that we serve, and yet we would rather just sit in our angst, in our pain, in our bones melting inside of us, just churning, than confess before God, than to bring that up to Him and say, "Lord, this is where I failed." Just a couple of things, and we're going to close out here this morning. If we're going to practice this idea of confession, I need you to know that all confession is going to be confession upwards, okay? It's first and foremost, going up to God. After David did everything he did in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Not true, David. You sinned against a whole lot of other people. But in that first step, he's recognizing that this is cosmic treason to God, the things that he has done. And he's confessing upward. Confession, when done wrong to others, should then be on that, well, Outward level to the person, I've wronged you, I've caused pain, I'm going to confess to you if you've wronged somebody directly. But finally, there's scenarios in which you haven't wronged somebody maybe directly, but you have done wrong and it's eating away at your soul. And you've confessed to God and you've said, Why won't this? Why do I wake up at night 20 years later still freaked out about a scenario or about this issue? The Book of Common Prayer addresses this when it says, if there be any of you who by this means cannot quiet his own conscience herein. That's self-talk. Okay? But require further comfort or counsel, let him come to me or to some other minister of God's word and open his grief. Confession. To somebody who's a part of the royal priesthood. That's not just me or the elders up here. That's, one another out there. That's what you are, priest, one to another. What happens in that moment, you get to be open and vulnerable and honest. And if somebody comes and confesses to you, we don't get to weaponize it against them someday or expose them. But we're called to cover them and love them and build them back up. Because in counseling, what happens when somebody bears their soul, there's language used like you are stripping down, essentially. We all know what it'd feel like to be just naked and bare before somebody. Well, in biblical counseling, what we try and ought to do is recover them or clothe them and who they are in Jesus, and this is something that God has given us. In John twenty twenty three, it says, "If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is with hell." Why is Jesus talking about this? Because of our desire to be accepted, loved, liked, cared for, brought in. We're image bearers. Sometimes, sometimes I need somebody outside myself to tell me I'm forgiven that it's okay, that God still loves me. And that hits me very different than just me hanging out with Jesus. It's something that he's done for us. It's a gift that he's given the church one to another. These are the things that confession does for us. Confession is good for the soul. Listen to this quote. Both forgiveness and healing are involved in confession. Forgiveness positions us in a right relationship toward God Objective righteousness, to use a theological term. Healing frees us from the domination of our, pre- of our present by our past. Subjective righteousness, to use another term from theology. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that makes both the forgiveness and the healing a reality. Without the cross, the discipline of confession would be only psychologically therapeutic. Essentially, what's going on here, it brings your soul relief. And I want you to know, it's my favorite lines. There's nothing you can uncover that God has not already covered. Please hear that today. And honestly, whether it's just between you and the Lord or you want to confess to a brother or sister in Christ, there's nothing new under the sun. No, you're not the only one you're not the only one. This room is filled with people who have lived Ephesians 2 where Paul says, you were like these people. This is your past. This is your history. You beat people up. You were just sexually giving yourselves to every and anyone who would take you. You are domineering. You are given to anger. Look, this is what people are like. Then Paul says, but but Christ came in and it begins to move into your life. But until we can accept what we were like and face it, confess it, how then do we move forward word. We have to acknowledge it, I'm telling you, in order to begin to work on something for change in our life. And this is where confession is such a gift, because we're finally able to be honest with ourselves. Where these are my issues. Forgive me, and help me change. Help me change. So this morning, if you're taking notes, like, Brett, I kind of am curious about this idea of confession. Listen, be specific. Be specific. We don't sin in generalities. We sin in specifics. We don't confess in generalities. We confess in specifics. Like, when I'm a real jerk to my wife sometimes, this doesn't go over real well. Hey, hon, I'm sorry for being a jerk. She's like, oh, what's new? But when I say, look, I know my words hurt you, and I said these things, and I own up to my wrongdoing, that's meaningful, because I'm specific, because I recognize it. Be sorrowful, not sorrowful because I got caught, but because you know the hurt and the pain that it has actually caused. I would say if we're going to come to confession to have determination that, Lord, I don't want, I want to love the things you love and hate the things you hate. Help me grow in this, give this determination how I can avoid this in the future, and finally, this morning, and in joy, if you are going to confess sin, and enjoy, and enjoy, why? Because that's what God has given us. We can finish out in Psalm thirty-two six. Uh, we'll start in verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or I will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Look, bad day, bad week, bad month. God's not like this. This is all you remember this week. That's great. He's not like this. He's like this. He says, come to me, come to me. I'm going to share some pretty bad stuff with God. That's okay. He's like this. He's not like this. And I will tell you, there will be relief in your soul. I'm not saying it won't plague you at times. I'm not saying it won't pop back up. I'm not saying you're not going to have to ongoing deal with things that have happened in your past. It may be a continued process of seeking God, But there's no reason for you to think of God like this and be pushed away. Church, when people come to us, drop the judgment and be like this. Come if you're weary and heavy laden. Come if the ways you've been taught are not giving you rest. Jesus' yoke, which is his teaching, it will give you rest. It will give you rest. Lose this posture. Embrace a new one. Come before the Lord. Confess and maybe even as a church, as Michael led us in prayer, what's it look like to corporately confess, not just one to another, but even corporate sins of our nation, of our town, of our church, down into our very lives. Let's pray. God, I pray that we come to you with a posture of seriousness, relief, and joy. Seriousness about the things we participated in that bring destruction, hurt, and pain. Relief that you accept and love us, have arms wide open, which then moves us into joy because we can declare that we're your child. Our identity has not changed. God, may we walk in that, embrace it, enjoy it, for you've been good to us. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. A couple of things this morning. We're going to continue to sing, to rejoice in the Lord. We have communion tables. There's two in the front. There's a little bit in the back. And if you're a follower of Jesus, think about these things. Maybe this is a great Sunday to actually before we pray to contemplate. These are things I want to confess. In fact, um, what we're going to do this morning, I'm just going to change it up on you guys. I'm not going to lead us in communion. Okay. I want you to spend some time. If it's you're here alone. Um, and, you, and you're a follower of Jesus, you can take it by yourself if you're here with a friend or there's some families around you that you are just here with or whatever it may be, small groups, take some time over the next two, two songs or so to really consider this. It's an offering box to give to what God is doing there in the back. But let's, let's take this time this week to just really come before Jesus and Michael's just gonna lead the rest of the gathering. It's in your hands and he'll uh, pray when we're all done.